Well, good morning. I'm uh, Matt Kerber, pastor at City Reformed. We do uh, uh, common sadness today, and we uh, uh, are going to preach a different message. We're going to read a different passage. I want to dismiss children for, uh, uh, for Children's Church. Um, they'll be going uh, to, to learn and to think and to gather together. Uh, but the passage we had scheduled for this, this Sunday from the book of James is a wonderful passage. I'm eager to return to it. Um, but tragic events interrupted in our city, and it seems that to me that this text was not addressing the reality of our situation. We had time to print something else, and so we have an insert for you uh, that uh, has a text from the book of Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter one. We'll be reading uh, from that instead today, as we think about the nature of comfort. The comfort that Jesus offers to us and the call he has for us to be comforters to those around us. I'll read the passage and we'll think about it together. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Our hope for you is unshakable, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Yesterday, a tragedy broke into our city. Saturday morning, October 27th, a gunman walked into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill and opened fire on members of the three congregations that were meeting there as part of their Sabbath services. As of last night, there were 11 fatalities and other injuries. Four police officers responding to the emergency were shot and wounded. The investigation is now being carried out by federal authorities as a hate crime because the attacker had posted online and made comments that were anti-Semitic. The grounds for his attack were not random hatred, but specific hatred for specific people because of their religious beliefs. The attack is one of the largest of its kind in Pittsburgh generally, While the Anti-Defamation League has asserted that this may be the largest attack ever on the Jewish people in American history in our country, 
the eyes of the nation and of the world have turned to our city, eyes that are filled with tears and rimmed in sadness. There are many connections that make this attack particularly striking for our congregation. Squirrel Hill is not just a location on a map or a random name that shows up next to a picture on your news feed. Squirrel Hill is in the neighborhood adjacent to Oakland. Many of our members live in that neighborhood. Until just a few weeks ago, our evening service was held in Squirrel Hill at the Community Day School. The Community Day School is a Jewish school that hosted us with extraordinary generosity for two and a half years until we were able to relocate to a building that we had purchased ourselves. On our uh, final service there, the school bought cakes for us to celebrate our time together and to thank us. This school in particular and the Jewish community at large in Pittsburgh have been good neighbors to us. Some of you don't know that prior to finding the Community Day School, we had intended to move to a service to Squirrel Hill. And we had talked with many groups and even uh, Jewish groups that were there. We were in the final stages of signing a contract with the Tree of Life Synagogue before we ultimately relocated to the Community Day School. Joseph had met with her pastor. They were gracious and caring to us as good neighbors. Citizens of our city are, we are, as citizens, we are alarmed when our neighbors are suffering. The list of names was released this morning. Though I didn't know any of them personally, I suspect that some of you do. Or you know their grandchildren, their children, and their relatives. Even as we meet together today, members of our congregation are beginning to find out that the connections of this tragedy are far more personal than we would want to believe. Our business associates, those that we have uh, visited in their stores, those that have served us in our schools and in their professional occupations, they are affected deeply and profoundly by this loss and by the terror that comes from being targeted for religious commitments. For members of our congregation who are ethnically Jewish, the pain of this attack is particularly acute. We recognize their sorrow because when one part of the body is in pain, the others are meant to feel it as well. As Christians commanded to love our city and to be good neighbors, we apply the general teaching of the Bible that calls us to weep with those who weep. We know that their loss is our loss. And we serve our city by identifying with the loss of our neighbors, particularly ones that are in such close proximity. But there is another aspect of this attack that we should keep in mind. Governor Wolf said in his comments yesterday that an attack on any house of worship is an attack on all houses of worship. President Trump expressed similar comments when he said that this is an attack on all of us. When the sanctity of worship spaces are not respected, when society suffers as a whole, when people are vulnerable in places of worship, then the fabric that holds the society together begins to unravel. 
While the particular threats made by this particular gunman are not aimed at us specifically, they're specifically aimed at Jewish people. The manner in which he carried out his attack, however, are violations of basic human rights that our Constitution is so careful to protect. The right to speech, to worship, without coercion, coercion or threats of violence. This is the basis of a free and just society, and the attack was a threat on that very fabric that holds us together as a nation. In the coming days, there will be important and significant debates that relate to this attack. Debates about gun control, our toxic political discourse, the nature of punishment for criminals, and methods for reducing the risk of violence in our public spaces. Those are essential discussions, ones that deserve careful attention. We must be praying for our leaders as they lead in difficult times. But today the wounds are fresh, they're immediate, and they're real to our neighbors. The lives of human beings made in the image of God have been violently desecrated. The community is in mourning. Our city is in mourning. Deep cords of sadness are woven into the hearts of many of our neighbors. Today is a day of prayer, a day for mourning, and for turning our attention to the power and the presence of the living God. My desire in reading from 2 Corinthians is to remind us of comfort that God offers for his people, comfort that many of us may feel like we need today. I also recognize that for some of us coming here, Squirrel Hill feels far away. The threat doesn't feel immediate. For some of us, it doesn't feel immediate. And yet I assure you that your neighbors and friends are suffering. They're trying to make sense of this senseless violence. Not only are we people that need to be comforted today, but we are called to be comforters In 2 Corinthians, Paul commissions us to be comforters as we have received comfort. I want to think with you not only about the comfort of God, but also about how we can be faithful to that task in our city and in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces and in our schools. But third and finally, this is a call of prayer. We are to be people of prayer. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us yet again of our great privilege and obligation to come before the living God and seek Him for mercy and help in our need. First of all, the comfort of Christ. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our afflictions. The comfort of the gospel is primarily a message of grace through Jesus Christ for all that would believe. The comfort that is offered through Jesus is not the cheap or thin comfort of telling ourselves that the world is actually a good place after all. It's not a cheap comfort that comes from trying to convince ourselves that people are generally good if they're only put in the right place. The message of the Bible is far starker than that. While it's painful to our ears, it so clearly describes the state of a broken world. 
The Bible tells us that humans are deeply and desperately fallen, that our hearts are bent towards wickedness, that we, we too, are prone to evil. It tells us that the world we live in is one that is often characterized by darkness and mourning and that humans are capable of terrible evil. Yesterday we saw the face of evil in our city. I read the list of victims this morning. I didn't know the names, but their neighborhoods were listed and they're all so close to mine. The youngest that was killed was 65. The oldest was 97. That is evil, isn't it? That the gunman went in and shot a 97-year-old woman as she prayed. That is evil. It's dark. We're right to name it and to hate it and still to find hope in the midst of it. Because God did not leave us in our darkness, in our evil. Down through the ages, not just Christians, but philosophers of all stripes have spoken of what they call the problem of evil. It is real. It is in our midst. And while we don't always need to be quite so blunt, we're better served not dressing it up with bows and ties and fancy clothing, there is evil. And it is far closer to our hearts than we would want to admit. The Bible answers the problem of evil not by denying it, but by telling it that God takes it deeply serious. He's a God of judgment and of justice. He hates evil and he will hold evildoers to account. It's the first message for the problem of suffering and evil. God grieves and hates violence. He is morally opposed to the violence that we've seen in our city. The violence that permeates so many parts of our society. And yet God does not allow evil to have the final word. The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and lived in our midst. He took upon himself on the cross the full weight of human evil that all that turned to him in faith could be forgiveness, could be forgiven, and to live in newness of life with God. The hope of the gospel is that God raises the dead, that Jesus was raised, and that one day he will renew the world, making all things right. There is a second message the Christians share. It's found in this passage as well. And that message is not just that God judges evil, but that he enters into human suffering. We are comforted by Christ because we know Christ suffered from evil men. Jesus lived in a dark world. The forces of evil and wickedness were turned upon him. Not just in particular individual form, but in the larger, broader societal forms. The crowds turned against Jesus as well. He knows what it is to suffer. So the book of Hebrews reminds us that we have a great high priest who is able to identify with our struggles and our suffering. And so the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, 
we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. Jesus suffered deeply and profoundly. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul spoke of that suffering as the fellowship. He speaks of our suffering as the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. The context of this passage is one where first and foremost we think of comfort for those in the church. But the application that Paul makes is bigger and broader. As we experience the comfort of Jesus, as we dare to find hope in a dark and broken world, as we find comfort from God's Spirit, knowing that Jesus too suffered and is able to identify God with us, Emmanuel walked in our shoes, face down the darkness of human evil. As we are people who experience that comfort, we too then become comforters. Second message of the passage is that Paul commissions us to be comforters. The manner in which we do this is dictated by the contours of the situation in which we comfort. But this passage has very broad application, doesn't it? Verse 4, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that there's a purpose. The comfort that we have found in Jesus becomes the means and motivation that we move outward to others around us. And Paul applies the consequences of that comfort in the broadest possible ways. He said, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Any affliction. When the Apostle Paul later speaks in Romans of weeping with those who weep, the broader context of that passage is not even just the church. It's a passage about how we conduct ourselves in a society more broadly, being willing to pray for those who would persecute us and to seek evil when we're harmed by the forces at large. The context of the command to weep with those who weep is not just the church. So as we see, seek to love and serve our neighbors, we seek to comfort those around us, even outside the church. We are commissioned to be a comforting people. Verse 6, he says, If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently adore, endure the same sufferings that we endure No doubt the immediate context of 2 Corinthians is the church suffering together. We are a people who have seen the comfort of the living God. We know his presence and his power and we are commissioned to care for those around us. We are commissioned to be comforters. Let me remind you briefly of what it means to bring comfort to those that suffer. The comfort that Jesus offered with his presence is a comfort of shared sorrow. Identifying with the experience of someone else. As we seek to comfort those beyond our church, in the city, and in the community, as we seek to be comforters to our Jewish neighbors that are suffering deeply, we can move towards them on the basis of our common humanity. As people made in God's image, we recognize right and wrong. We know the people who died yesterday and were killed 
are people with extraordinary value because they were made in the image of God and we can recognize the loss is real. We recognize the harm that was done and we enter in to know the experience. This is the ground level of our comfort. Friends, this applies across the board in all times and places. The entry point of our comfort is to recognize the value of what was lost to affirm the reality of suffering and even evil when appropriate and to share in that sorrow weeping with those who weep. Comforters are not primarily there to make things go away with their words. We don't enter first and foremost to fix problems. We don't make it better by explaining all the reasons why it happened. Instead, we enter in, weeping with those who weep, recognizing the gravity of what was lost, affirming the dignity of life, and even acknowledging the reality of darkness and evil. Later, other things happen too. God's timing and God's ways, but we don't use sorrow as a means of manipulation for seeking to change people, to make, convince them to agree with us. We first and foremost enter in as comforters to share in sorrow, to weep with those who weep, and to acknowledge loss where it is real and where it is true. These lessons apply in these great tragedies and they apply in our personal tragedies as well. Many of you here in our congregation have experienced great loss. You know that you're not helped when people try to explain your problems away, even with great pious sounding language. But our first step is identity, sharing in sorrow, and weeping with those who weep. There's a third step However, Paul moves on to this. He speaks of a a particularly painful circumstance in his own life. For some of you here today, the shootings yesterday were exactly this sort of a deep, unbelievable, painful circumstance as if the, the bottom fell out from under you and the pit of sorrow was deeper than you could imagine. For others of you, Personal tragedies have brought that in other forms and other times. Paul speaks of suffering in his life. He says when he thinks about it and reflects on it, he speaks of a particular experience, an affliction he experienced in Asia, verse 8. He said, I was so utterly, we were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you been there before? Are you there now? You know that people entering in to explain it away don't help you. Those who share your suffering, grieve with you in your grief and weep with your tears, bring the reminder of loving and caring presence into a time of deep loss. Paul says he felt as if he had received the sentence of death And yet that caused him to rely on God who raises the dead. Paul reminds us that God does have a final word. Death is not the final word. 
But Jesus raised from the dead is the first fruit of all who would believe in him. There is a hope greater than death, greater than the darkness and the wickedness of our world. There is a hope that is greater still. And out of that hope, Paul calls them to beseech the living God to work, to act. The God who raises the dead is the God who is at work in the world. The resurrection of the dead is the end of history from the Christian perspective. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the end of history is broken in now. The God who raises the dead, Paul says, is the God who is active in the world. He has worked to deliver us before. He will deliver us again. Friends, we are not alone in a world of darkness and suffering. We've seen the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and affliction. He has revealed the glory of the living God in our presence, a God, Emmanuel, a God with us, a God who acts. And out of this confidence, then, Paul urges us to be people of prayer. Are we people of prayer? Do we say prayer is an easy word of response to tragedy or do we pray in the midst of a tragedy? There's a growing cynicism in our culture about prayer. I suspect it's partly because we've used cheap phrases like hopes and prayers for so long without any real content or meaning to them. We've promised to pray for people perhaps more as a way to dismiss their concerns as if we don't really want to engage or think about the matters at hand. That certainly has happened. But I wonder if, in part, we have cynicism about prayer because God's people who call on his name are not actually praying as they should or could. Friends, let me just speak to you personally for a moment. This is my opinion. I'm, I'm fearful for our country. I am fearful for the escalating rhetoric of violence that is present in so many sectors of our society. I'm fearful for shooters and bombings and poison envelopes in the mail. I'm fearful that the commonality that holds us together is fraying so deeply that even tragedies become platforms for anger and hate very quickly. There are real things our politicians need to do, really hard discussions about guns and safe places and violence and protections. I don't think any of these things on their own are going to answer the deep, deep problems that we're facing as a country. Are we desperate for God's power to be at work among us? Are we willing to pray to the God of heaven, not just with platitudes, not, not just saying my hopes and prayers are there, we'll light a candle and move on, it's not how God's people have prayed down through the ages. The people of God who have known him through the face of Jesus Christ, who have come with confidence to their heavenly father, have battled with the gates of heaven down through the ages. 
with desperation. Not messing around with just a few things here and there when we happen to think of it, but committing themselves to prayer. They have expressed their dependence on the living God and begged him to work in their midst. Are we ready to do that? A little more seriously. I'm beginning to feel more desperate myself. Paul writes this. You also must help us in prayer. Isn't that remarkable? The apostle, Paul. Paul had supernatural power attending to him on a regular basis. He was an apostle. He had spoken with the Lord Jesus. And he seems to say of himself that he had a vision of the seventh heaven, the third heaven. And yet this apostle Paul says to this church, this church in Corinth that had been racked by sin and brokenness, He had written two letters to them because they had so many problems. But Paul said, I really need your prayers. You also must help us by prayer so that we will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Friends, the Apostle Paul believed that he needed the prayers of the Corinthians and the prayers of many He believed that the living God of the universe who abides with us is pleased to respond to his people when they come to him in dependence, desperation even. Oh God, would you heal our land? Please do not leave us to ourselves. Don't leave us alone in darkness. But show yourself. Would you join me in those prayers? Friends, we have comfort in Christ and we are called to be comforters to others. We're also called to be prayers. I'm going to pray and as I close the prayer, I'm going to just pause silently and ask you to silently join with me in prayers for our city and for our country. Let's pray.